Can an algorithm be racist? U.S. government testing finds even the top facial recognition systems misidentify black people up to 19 times more often than whites. Goldman Sachs says its systems do not discriminate against women after Apple co-founder Steve Wozniak claimed his wife was offered a lower credit limit. Twitter has unwittingly reignited the debate over racism in AI after a black man was cropped out by the network's photo preview algorithm while a white man was left in the image. Hi, it's John here. Have you heard? Our old friend, artificial intelligence, has been making headlines again. As we've talked about on this podcast before, AI is at work all around us, all the time. It determines which emails get through our spam filters, It figures out which of our credit card transactions to flag as fraudulent. It recommends music and TV shows we might like. It helps businesses better target customers with offers. And it helps narrow down our searches when we shop online. Those are all good things. Unfortunately, many businesses may not have considered all the implications as we rush to embrace this burgeoning technology, taking what's referred to as the go fast and break things approach. That may be why we're seeing so many negative headlines. Concern is growing over bias in artificial intelligence after a Detroit man was wrongfully arrested due to a false facial recognition match. So how do we make sure artificial intelligence is working for us, for all of us, in a responsible, ethical way? How do we guarantee it isn't simply reinforcing old biases, the biases of its creators and coders? We're putting people's personal data at risk. We're straight up violating human rights. This is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. We've just published a new paper from our thought leadership group at RBC, exploring the ethical challenges of facial recognition, which is driven by AI. In this pandemic, our faces are everywhere, even when we're not. It's made many things more convenient, like opening your phone or managing the flow of people in crowded areas. But the attendant risks are equally enormous. Racial profiling, gender profiling, and regardless of who you are, mistaken identity. You can read more about this at rbc.com slash thought leadership. Artificial intelligence is clearly important to the future of financial services, but it's also critical to the future of our country and our communities. So at RBC, a few years ago, we created an independent research institute called Borealis AI. Borealis recently surveyed Canadian businesses and found more than three quarters of those currently using AI agree it's important for their businesses to do so in an ethical way, but only half of those organizations currently have someone responsible for the ethical development of data and AI technology. That's why Borealis has just launched a new campaign called Respect AI. For more on the initiative, we reached out to a familiar voice here at Disruptors, Dr. Fotini Agrafioti. I've come to know Fotini, and she's an extraordinary person. She's the head of Borealis and RBC's chief science officer. She's also co-chair of a national advisory council on AI with Joshua Bencio, the renowned scientist from Montreal. For our program, uh, Responsible AI is focused on five distinct areas. Uh, The first one is fairness and bias which refers to the problem of AI systems making decisions that discriminate against certain populations. The second area of focus is explainability, 
which pertains to the need for machine learning models to be able to rationalize the way they make decisions. The third area of focus is privacy and how privacy can be built into engineering designs. The fourth area is governance. So what type of constraints and approval processes need to be in place for models to be governed as they get built into products. And the last area of focus is robustness, where we focus more on AI safety. The premise of machine learning is that it, it enables automated decision-making. And as such, uh, you would want to make sure that those decisions stay within certain constraints that come from the business, society, regulation, whatever that may be. We'll hear more from Fotini a little later on. But next, I'd like to welcome my guests, the two women who will be joining me in this conversation about the risks and rewards of AI in our society. Ruha Benjamin is a sociologist and an associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton, where she focuses on the intersection of race, justice, and technology. Sadia Muzaffar is a Canadian entrepreneur, author, and the founder of Tech Girls Canada, a nonprofit created to promote women in science, tech, engineering, and math. Welcome both of you to Disruptors. Thank you. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Sadia, as a force for disruption, how would you rate AI? I think that's an interesting question because AI, like many other technologies, is an accelerant of you know, values um, and systems that we have already. So I don't think that AI is this very unique thing that's like landing out of nowhere and changing everything. I think what it's doing is it's putting how we work and how we conduct, you know, business and life on steroids. So in that way, I think it makes bad things really bad very quickly. And that's the risk that we have to manage and mediate. I mentioned facial recognition in the introduction. Is that a force for good? Um, I would say no. In general, I think facial recognition has become the poster child for risky AI for a variety of reasons. And I think one of the major issues is that it amplifies the power imbalance in the people and organizations that are producing data on the population versus the population's ability to be able to understand that they're being watched and surveilled. And so it really is a stark example of being tracked and being watched without knowing who's doing the tracking and to what ends. I think to Ruha's point, it's also such an embodied thing, right? Facial recognition, because it's literally our faces. So I think a lot of people have a harder time imagining you know, where their data is going from their phone, but their faces are something very close and personal to them. Do you see a way of managing this or do we need to pause, reflect and find a better way forward? So far, there hasn't been any applications that I've seen that override the risk that we are taking in putting it out there. When it comes to human behavior, I'm very, very cautious because the power imbalance that Ruha mentioned is very embedded in the structures that we have right now. And putting AI and machine learning in this environment is like putting gasoline on a fire, right? So we have to be really careful. So I am much more comfortable in saying, maybe we need to not do that for human behavior right now. But is it seven months into this crisis, 
human behavior has changed remarkably. We're all Zooming and doing so many other things we didn't consider or even know about at the beginning of this year. And all of those things pretty much are dependent on advanced technology. And there are consequences to that use of technology. And probably the biggest one is the explosion of data just in the last number of months. Before we get into the impacts of that, uh, of that data explosion, can you each give us a sense of how you think COVID has affected not just the volume of data, but our general relationship with it? I think anytime during various crises, it creates an, an opening for those who want to capitalize on that moment to swoop in and in many cases offer tech solutions for what are really deep-seated social and political problems. We can just take educational inequality as one. We know back in March when schools had to abruptly go online, um, we saw the stark inequality among students. We saw so many students, for example, just looking at New York, who were experiencing housing insecurity. Not only didn't they have access to broadband and devices, but homes in which to work remotely. And so it really exposes inequalities. But then what we do with that exposure when we see it is another thing. And in, in many cases, those who have the power and resources to swoop in as the Gates Foundation did in New York in order to offer learning, you know, learning software to address uh, the, the, the greater need for remote education. I think we have to be very cautious in these tech fixes that offer a kind of cosmetic temporary solution, but don't deal with the underlying inequalities that are laid bare during a moment like this. That makes me think of the the challenges with the COVID apps that we're seeing here in Canada, but around the world and varying degrees of take up with it, which is uh, a fundamental challenge because they're only good if you have a critical mass of people using the app and presumably algorithms learning from that. It's a great example of how past patterns of harm, discrimination, surveillance are going to come home to roost at a moment when we really need public trust in order to do something like contact tracing, whether we talk about old school kind of public health contact tracing or digital tracing for communities who've consistently been harmed by those in authority, whether police or other agents of the state, you have absolutely no reason to trust that these forms of tracing are going to benefit you as opposed to come somehow harm you. And so it's that deficit of trust that now we have to, we're, we have to come to grips with. But who, who should be regulating this? Who and in what situations versus a, a caveat emptor, buyer beware, consumer preference model? I think I'd be very cautious around the consumer preference model just because it requires an understanding of technology that should not be my grandmother's job. <laughs> you know, it just shouldn't. Nobody reads terms and conditions, even if you put it out there, that, because they're designed in a way that you wouldn't. And to your question about who should be regulating, our governments. Our governments should be regulating this. And we regulate a hundred million other things. And this should happen as well. And the regulation can't be co-written with these companies, which is also a thing that's happening. You're listening to Disruptors, an RBC podcast. I'm your host, John Stackhouse. This season, we're focused on the forces reshaping the Canadian economy, including the COVID-19 pandemic. 
Canada stands at a crossroads of technology, entrepreneurship, and social change. And we'd love for you to join us on this journey. Please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And feel free to email us, rbcdisruptors at rbc.com. Today, we're tackling the topic of bias in artificial intelligence with my guests, Sadia Muzaffar, the founder of Tech Girls Canada, and Ruha Benjamin, a sociologist and associate professor at Princeton. At the start of the episode, we heard about a new campaign from Borealis AI, which is basically a giant push for responsible artificial intelligence. And that's what I want to talk about next. How do we ensure that AI is a force for good and not simply one that reinforces existing biases? So much of bias comes down to data. It's the old principle of garbage in, garbage out. While we're in the midst of this data explosion, and that's been underway for several years, but it's hit that proverbial hockey stick curve in this pandemic, we haven't nearly come to grips with the challenges of just gathering and curating data, doing that effectively, but also responsibly. Ruha, how much of it is the algorithm of AI and how much of it is the input? And where might we want to focus more of our attention? I'm of the mind that we need to chew gum and walk at the same time. So we need to look at the nitty gritty of the model, the algorithmic model. We need to look at the data. We need to look at the larger ecosystem in which technology is being designed, which Saidia was pushing us towards thinking about just a minute ago. But also, I think for me, the ground zero that sets off tech development in one trajectory or another is thinking very carefully about the questions we pose that we want technology and data to solve. So how we pose the question, what the question is, really sets us off in one trajectory that tends to reinforce the status quo, the unjust status quo, or can potentially expose inequities in order that we might address them. And so in particular, when we're looking at, let's say, risk assessment um, technologies and tools, whether financial risk or criminal risk or health risk, in all of these cases, too often our questions are posed in the direction of the most vulnerable. That is, we're trying to predict the riskiness of individuals who are already struggling in our current systems, rather than turning the lens back onto the more powerful actors and organizations that in many cases are producing risk for people. And one of the additional challenges, Sadia, when we talk about inputs, to put it uh, perhaps uh, clinically, is uh, the human input. Data is just a bunch of digits. What happens with those digits is really up to the humans who do the coding, but also do the strategizing. It's also an outcome of our society, the way we train people, the way we educate people. Uh, You've been doing really interesting work through Tech Girls Canada. And I wonder if you can share some insights that you've gained over the years in terms of how we can better develop the human inputs, if I can put it that way, that can help us counter the sort of biases that we've been talking about? It's a really interesting question because it steers us towards a thing that I get asked a lot, which is, is bias personal or structural? Is bias personal or systemic? And that kind of question assumes that it has to be one or the other, when in reality, biases 
operate in like a co-perpetuating loop, right? So the systemic biases create room for the personal stuff and the personal stuff defends the sanctions for systemic and structural policies and programs that keep this kind of stuff in place. So if we want to address AI or machine learning's shortcomings, we really have to look at what are they tasked to do? The people who are writing the code are bringing their own biases. Where is the check and balance there? Who is accountable at the end of the day? Who do we go to? So those structures in society, in government, need to be very robust. And right now we're struggling there. We're also struggling, and and we saw this in the Borealis uh, survey, to get enough people into this field. Uh, Not nearly enough Canadian operators have the people and many of them can't even find the people or afford the people who could maybe put them on a better course. I think part of the stuff that I'm wrestling with and trying to figure out is, is it right to have this one person inserted in a giant machine and give them the responsibility of ensuring that whatever is produced by this company or this giant machine is ethical? So I... I would actually be really interested in hearing from Ruha on, you know, how much promise do you think having somebody in charge of ethics in a company has? Is it like a band-aid solution? Is it a mitigator until we get to a better place? Or do you think there's another way of doing this? Because it's hard. Yeah, I think that in general, it tends to be a tokenistic uh, solution. That is, not only are, are those individuals usually serve as a kind of figurehead or a proxy for something that should be happening at a more robust level. And I think really thinking about the organizational culture, how values are incentivized or not, is a much more sustainable model. And rather than just thinking about individuals who fill a role, because oftentimes it's just easy to dismiss or sort of nod um, at the ethical advice that those individuals may be giving without actually um, implementing that if the rest of the organization is really uh, pushing in a different direction. Sadia, how do, how do we talk about good actors, whether it's responsible users or workers, programmers, especially in a marketplace that is pushing for other outcomes, be it uh, scaling or profitability or market expansion? I think we are in the habit of giving people cookies too soon for things that they say and haven't actually proven. If you have one person who has gone to school and studied ethics and they bring this perspective to a company, that can never equal having a culture that creates accountability around what you're producing and having to defend how you're mitigating harm that will come out of this. I don't think that we need to talk about good actors so much that we need to have the larger conversation of how are we going to change this normal? I'm so glad you raised that point about culture because the cliche I think is true that culture eats strategy for breakfast and uh, data culture eats data strategy. For people listening, regardless of uh, where they work or what they do, who may be wondering about culture, what are a couple of things they might want to think about in, in terms of developing a better data culture and a better AI culture? 
I would really encourage people to check out the design justice principles. If you just Google or search design justice, you'll see um, a list of principles that I think are a, a really great starting point to thinking about data culture, organizational culture. For example, it's something about the speed at which decisions are made and we try to get products out the door works against a, a really thoughtful evaluation of equity and bias and justice. So the faster we're trying to get to the market, the harder it becomes to really take seriously the issues we're raising in this conversation. Sadia, what would you want people to reflect on? Everything that Ruha said. Um, but in addition to that, I think I'm also very interested in people who are higher in that food chain, in the hierarchy in the organization, actually come forward and share with everybody how they can be held responsible and accountable. And what are they doing when they sign off on something? How are they ensuring the thing that the green light has had some sort of review of harms done, not just benefits? And I've been in countless product meetings and nobody almost ever talks about who could this potentially harm? Mm. I wonder if, as we move towards close, if you could both share reflections on the challenge of size and scale, because so much of what's going on in the world is really driven by scale. The big have gotten bigger. But whether it's for companies or organizations who may be listening to this and thinking, that's all well and good, but I'm too small to really do anything about this, or even for a country like Canada, where we might look in the mirror collectively and say, this is a great conversation, but you know, ultimately, the destiny is going to be determined by players who are bigger even than our country. How should we be thinking about that challenge? I mean, one way to really think about it is the fact that we need niches. We need places where people and organizations are experimenting with new models, new practices, new patterns, new ways of posing problems because the standard ways that we've been doing things now for generations are not do not serve the vast majority of people. If we look at all of our kind of major institutions and policies, whether it's educational policies that produce ignorance and healthcare policies that produce vulnerability and labor policies that produce disposable people, almost every arena in terms of the big players, the standard approaches do not serve the vast majority of people. But it's one thing to be able to critique that and point out the problem to diagnose it. It's another thing entirely to be able to say, well, this is another way to do things. And so for those entities and individuals who are listening, who are thinking, I'm just a small player, that actually it offers a kind of freedom to experiment, to tinker with more just approaches where you prioritize equity over just efficiency and profit. Sadia, how do you think about the challenge of scale? I thought many, many, many years ago, we decided bigger was not always better. <laughs> and we had laws and we had regulations. And we said that we will make sure that we would not allow concentration of power in the way that a lot of big companies right now are wielding. There was something there. I'd like for us to go back. Yes, they've gotten very, very big, bigger than some nation states, as you were mentioning, John. But bigger at what cost? There is a notion of sovereignty that I think we need to take seriously. 
just because a problem, you know, is huge everywhere does not mean that we don't carve out the space that Ruha was talking about within structures of sovereignty. And that could be for Canada. Within Canada, we have our government, we have our rules, we have our policies. We can set the bar higher and we can also hold ourselves to a better standard, a harder thing that is a better thing and more just thing for people. And we need to look at this as the long game. This is not hiring two people tomorrow to announce that you now have a diversity and inclusion person and an ethics person and thank you very much. I'm talking about taking on this work of dismantling these structures that permeate our lives. And that is very, very serious work. So I think we can't just throw up our arms and say they're too big because, like I said, there are solutions to that bigness. Too often we think of sovereignty as something to do with governments and borders and nation states. And sovereignty applies much more broadly. And it's actually a really important word when we think about data and AI. What is our sovereignty over our data and over the tools and technologies that have influence and impact on our lives? Those are the sorts of questions we're really going to need to wrestle with as we continue through this crisis, as data becomes more powerful, more profound, and in many ways, more positive. This is not all negative. We also heard in this conversation about the power of small. Too often, when we talk about AI and when we talk about big tech, we underline that word big and almost surrender our sovereignty in that conversation, saying, hey, we're too small. Me as a little individual consumer or my company or my country is just too small to determine the destiny or even direction of these conversations. That's a cheap excuse. We should all assert our sovereignty in different ways, in the way we make decisions, in the way we have these conversations. And then on the people front, how do we get more people engaged and involved and not leave it to a small group of very talented people, but who may close the door metaphorically, perhaps literally too, on larger groups of people who should be involved in these uh, conversations and in these decisions in any organization, as well as in the, uh, the marketplace at large. So through this, we've been talking about both the pitfalls and the potential of artificial intelligence. And there's a lot of both. But in closing, I'd like to share one more thought from Fotini, who believes that despite all the risks, AI can still be a force for good in our world. For every concern uh, that I have had about a way that machine learning has been applied, I've also come across a very promising uh, opportunity for AI to be moving society forward. There's legitimate reasons why this technology needs to advance, and by far the benefits will outweigh the disadvantages here, but we, we just have to pause think it through and plan carefully how we're going to take our next steps as, as, uh, as an industry in this space. My guests today have been Ruha Benjamin, a sociologist and associate professor of African-American studies at Princeton, and Sadia Muzaffar, an entrepreneur, author, and founder of Tech Girls Canada. My thanks to both of you for the conversation. It's been an honor. Thank you so much for including me. Thank you. Thank you for having me too. 
We also heard from Dr. Fotini Agrafioti, the head of Borealis AI and our chief science officer here at RBC. I'm John Stackhouse, and this is Disruptors, an RBC podcast. Join us next time when we're going to talk about the implications of a massive technological shift underway in the wireless sector. If 4G gave us things like TikTok, Uber, and FaceTime, what does the rollout of 5G mean for Canadians? The possibilities right now seem endless. Talk to you soon. RBC Disruptors is created by the RBC Thought Leadership Group and does not constitute a recommendation for any organization, product, or service. It's produced and recorded by JAR Audio. For more RBC Disruptors content, like or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and visit rbc.com disruptors.